Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we explore the mysteries of Cuba, save endangered species with a leading animal expert, and pack for a purpose to help others when traveling. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're excited to travel to Cuba, talk animals with Jack Hanna, and welcome back Rebecca Rothney of Pack for a Purpose, one of World Footprints' social partners. She'll share how Pack for a Purpose is growing and leaving positive footprints. Thanks, dear. As the U.S. policy towards Cuba relaxes, many Americans have been biting at the bit to discover this mysterious country. Cuban travel expert and tour operator Tom Popper joins us to tell us how travel to Cuba is within reach. The other benefit of going with an organized program is you you do get unique access to people and places in Cuba that you cannot get as just a, a casual tourist. Animal expert Jack Hanna, best known for his entertaining animal interactions on television, shares his serious side as an animal educator and conservationist. I'm still the same person I was as a young boy on the boy on the farm in Tennessee. I'm not affected by television, but uh, it is a good way to talk about get the word of conservation out there. Rebecca Rothney, founder of Pack for a Purpose, helps travelers leave huge footprints with just small, simple steps. And Pack for a Purpose travelers, who are the final participants that make this happen, have taken over 1,500 pounds of supplies in the last two years. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Due to recent changes in U.S. policy towards Cuba, many Americans have been biting at the bit to discover this mysterious country. Insight Cuba is one of a very few travel companies that have been licensed by the U.S. Treasury Department to provide tours to Cuba. And the company's president, Tom Popper, joins us to help us travel vicariously through his adventures. Tom, welcome and congratulations on your promotion to president. Tony, thank you very much and uh, thank you for having me. It's it's our pleasure. One of the things you know, I didn't realize until yesterday that uh, Inside Cuba was uh, is a division of Cross Cultural Solutions, and I'm very familiar with that organization. That's terrific. Yeah, we're Cross Cultural Solutions is an international volunteer organization that's been around since 1995, and uh, as a division of that organization in Site Cuba. Uh, it's a perfect fit and follows with our mission, and we're, we're glad to be part of it. Absolutely. Now, I'm just curious, did you have a fascination with Cuba before joining Insight Cuba? I've had a fascinating a fascination with international travel my whole life. Uh, when we learned that we could travel to Cuba legally, uh, Cross-Cultural Solutions and, and I, we, we had to go. Um, so we immediately applied for our license. We received it. Um, we didn't know quite what to do because this was really the, the forefront uh, of this kind of programming. So we got on a plane once we were authorized and went to Cuba. And the country and the people and everything around kind of fit into my philosophy on travel. And I think our organization's philosophy, just unique opportunities to uh, meet the local people and, and have amazing travel experiences. And so when you said to, to talk about Cuba vicariously, you know, that's how I approach everything, is, is to try to bring my passion and my love for travel and, and allow other people to have those experiences. 
how um, what were your perceptions before traveling to Cuba, and, and how were those shifted, or did you have expectations when you first uh, visited the island? I love that question. You know, as many countries as I've traveled to uh, over the years, I think I go. I went to Cuba with many of the same perceptions as many Americans, because there were so few. I didn't know anybody who had traveled to Cuba at the time. And there's really no basis to go off of other than the news reports that we've been hearing over the years. Um, so I expected it to be a, a tightly controlled system. Uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to expect, if we were going to be able to travel freely, um, how the culture would, would be, how we'd be received as Americans, what the culture would be like. And I was absolutely astounded when I got there that every all my my perceptions were incorrect uh, the people are warm and gentle the culture is vibrant um, I was able to move around freely so all these all these perceptions that I had just washed away and um, I just fell in love with the people in the country right away mm-hmm. and so you know the perceptions that some listeners uh, may have about you know some people may recall like the Cuban Missile Crisis or they'll see um, they'll remember stories about you know boatloads small boatloads of people fleeing the island for Miami and so they have you know the perception of this dictatorship um, and people walking around uh, with uh, machine guns and you know certainly poverty I mean I know the, the island is still uh, suffering from um, many forms of, of poverty but it's not the scary place that some people envision that's that's right and and that is a lot of the perception what you mentioned that people go there with um, but it's just not that way and and quite frankly Tanya I find this with many countries I travel to the politics uh, between countries is quite different than the experience on the ground. And Cuba is, is much the same way. Um, you know, there's, there's, there aren't machine guns being pointed and our, our visits aren't being controlled. And, and, you know, I'm able to move about the, the country freely. But the, the spirit of the people thrives. Um, uh, everyday life in the cities, um, it operates just like any other place. Uh, a lot of people ask me about the poverty because their perception is the, the economy has, has been suffering for so long. Um, the, the best way to explain it, and if you've traveled to any Caribbean island or any, any country in South America, Africa, around the world, you know, there's poverty in so many places, and there's, there's, there's differences between the upper class and, and those and the poor. Um, in Cuba, by and large, the playing field has been leveled. You don't see abject poverty in the same way you see in other countries in the area or in Latin America. So on that regard, um, it's a very safe place to travel to. That's the other question people ask me about all the time. Is it safe? And it's incredibly safe. Uh, so much that my wife, when she travels with me, she's comfortable walking around downtown Havana in the middle of the night, which she, she refuses to do really in any other foreign destination. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would imagine that uh, when you're going through customs in Cuba and, and you know, even departing the island, uh, that there aren't very many issues. But I'm wondering what issues you experienced or your, uh, some of the people who have traveled with you have experienced coming back into the United States. Have there been any issues? Uh, we haven't experienced any issues per se. I think it depends on the day of the week. Uh, some, you know, we do recommend that all the travelers that come back 
uh, when they fill out their customs and immigration form, mention, if provided they've traveled with us, and that would be legally, that they mention that they've been to Cuba. So I would say half the time uh, people say, where, have you, where are you coming from? I tell them Cuba, and they say, oh, welcome home, and they pass you through. Hmm. Other times they ask me questions, do I have any cigars or any Cuban rum or other goods? Um, and they may want to check my bag. Sometimes they ask us for a copy of our license and letter of authorization, which provides legal travel to all, all participants that come through. But by and large, um, they understand that if they travel within, say, Cuba, they're licensed, and we have had no incidents that I can report. One of the things that I've heard, too, Tom, is, um, you know, I, I know of people who have traveled illegally, and I say that quote-unquote illegally, through other channels, other countries, um, and the reason why is because it's so much, uh, it's, it's more affordable to travel to Cuba that way than through um, proper channels. Because the travel restrictions have been relaxed, do you see the cost of legal travel to Cuba going down at all? Well, the, the difference that you'll see in cost for somebody that travels independently, the, the main difference is the amount of organization behind it. So to purchase a ticket to, to stay in a hotel or uh, anywhere else in Cuba, those costs will be far less than if you're going on an organized program. Uh, but the other benefit of going with an organized program is you, you do get unique access to people and places in Cuba that you cannot get as a, just a, a casual tourist. So all of our programs are coordinated with institutions and government entities that will allow us this access. So to answer your question, though, um, you know, travel to Cuba is, is comparative to other countries that provide tours or programs depending on the country and the organization, can be on, on par for a lot of destinations in, in the Caribbean or Latin American market. It is a little bit more expensive. That's in part because of the restrictions in place and all of our programs have to, have to conform mm -hmm. with U.S. Treasury licenses. So um, there is a certain amount of extra expense that goes into it. and um, But... You know, we hope over time that more and more people will be traveling, and, and surely the prices to, will be decreased. Well, I, I do believe in um, being safe. Or what is it? Rather be safe than sorry. So uh, I'd rather uh, our listening audience members to travel safely with a licensed organization such as Insight Cuba than uh, uh, certainly uh, travel any other way because nothing, that type of travel is not guaranteed. And speaking of um, travel, I know that you guys, uh, Insight Cuba, uh, has partnered with one of our favorite restaurants in the world, Cuba Libre, um, on a culinary tour that is coming up next month. Talk a little bit about that, because food, you know, if anyone's eaten at any Cuban restaurant or had a mojito at any Cuban restaurant, um, they know that the food is, in addition to the culture and the, the beautiful people, is very, very Rich, tell our listeners what they can expect from that tour, the culinary tour. That's right. Cuba Libre is, is in conjunction with us inside Cuba, is offering a tour that is April 20th through the 24th based on the culinary experiences in Cuba. Um, it's four days, uh, three nights, and they're going to be um, the Cuban-born uh, chef will be uh, escorting them through the program. Um, and we're excited to be doing this with them. We, we actually did this, a similar program 
with Cuba Libre Restaurant back in 2003. Um, so this will be our, our second time with them, so we're excited. And, and it, it just highlights uh, part of what Inside Cuba does, which is provide also custom group travel. So while individual travelers can register on one of our six programs, uh, people should also know that if they have a, a small group or a large group, um, we can organize custom customized programs for them, which are incredibly fun mm -hmm. um, and amazing, depending on the group. So uh, we were happy to be able to to customize a program for Cuba Libre. Mm. Have you noticed any differences in society, I guess, on the island since Raul Castro has uh, assumed power from uh, from uh, Fidel? Any changes, good or otherwise? That's a great question. Culturally, I would say no. You know, as far as culture goes in Cuba, it's they hold on to it dearly. Um, so it's one of the amazing things about visiting Cuba is even the youth embraces traditional dance and traditional music, salsa, which is which is huge in Cuba. Um, the youth still plays it, still dances to it, but they also embrace other types of music. But they haven't lost it, so it remains. Um, I would say socially and economically. Uh, there's definitely some noticeable changes on the streets since Raul and has taken over and, and implemented some changes. You know, the first thing I noticed when I went back uh, to Cuba was virtually every Cuban has a cell phone. You know, when I was wow. last time I was there in 2003, um, cell phones were not legal, um, and if a Cuban had a cell phone, it was by and large, you know, you wouldn't see them out in the street with it. Now they're they're all texting and, and using their cell phones. Uh, cottage industries are, are sprouting up uh, all throughout Havana and the provinces. Um, some of it, they're catering to local Cubans. Uh, some of these, these cottage businesses are, are catering to, you know, the increased tourists and, and certainly the people-to-people the -people visitors from America. But uh, these are things you didn't see so out in the open in the past, and I think it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's great for the local community. And it's a, it's a great experience for, for travelers as well. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you would advise people to consider before traveling to Cuba, particularly that first-time uh, traveler? Are there vaccines required now? Should they uh, bring extra soap and toiletry items to, to give to locals? Um, what would be some of the, the things that you would uh, advise people to consider before uh, consider you know traveling to Cuba for the first time. Sure, um, no vaccines are needed. Um, their health system's fairly advanced, so if you do get a stomach ailment, you'll be fine. There's there's uh, doctors and nurses in, in all the major hotels, which is incredibly convenient. Um, but my biggest advice is for for people considering going to Cuba is certainly to travel with an open mind. Cuba is an amazing country with amazing people. But it has its own rhythm and it has its own beat. Oftentimes I tell people that Cuba is a native word that means change. That's not the case, but so many things rapidly change in Cuba. So, for example, we were talking about the Jazz Festival, and we're waiting to get clarity on the dates because we understand they might change for one reason or the other. So to go down with an open mind that you're going to Cuba for the experience and not for a particular activity or thing that you're hoping to do, um, and also to go there knowing that it's it's not necessarily uh, a visit to stay in a hotel. Mm -hmm. It's the people you're going to meet. It's the experiences that you're going to have on the island, island that 
those are the memories you will cherish forever. Um, while they do have international uh, style standard hotels, um, they're not necessarily up to the same standards that you might find, certainly not in the U.S., Europe, um, and, and Latin America, but they're safe. Some are absolutely gorgeous and classic, uh, but the standards are different. And to just go there with an open mind, uh, everybody's trip will, will be, you know, incredible. Tom, in, in the last minute that we have left, I wanted to ask you whether or not travelers have the opportunity to have a firsthand experience with some locals, uh, for example, you know, dine in a, in a local's home, which I know uh, is offered, you know, if meeting somebody on a beach or, 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 or somewhere in town, some visitors will be invited into a home for a lobster meal. Are, are those type of, of opportunities available? They do. They they exist on so many levels, and it's it's the crux of our programming. Certainly, the people-to-people interaction, and we encourage everybody throughout our programs and each activity to engage the people they meet. You know, we can we can create the opportunities for interaction. For example, oftentimes we we bring people to uh, block parties where they celebrate the arrival of the participants because having Americans in their community is a big deal. This is in some cases it hasn't happened in in 50 years, and. Uh, you know, as long as everybody engages and reaches out to one another, sometimes you do get invited into their home, and they're so proud to introduce you to their family and and show you the things that they have and and so forth. Well, I certainly hope that that people's interest, uh, listeners' interest, have, has been piqued in in Cuba because I think you know it's a beautiful country, still um, very much undiscovered by Americans, and uh, and still very. Very raw. I mean, it's it's not overly developed, and and I think before that happens, and I, I you know, perhaps that will be coming in the near future. Um, now would be a wonderful time to visit. And uh, Tom, I, I thank you so much. We will have a link to Insight Cuba on our website. Tom Popper with Insight Cuba. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tony, thank you very much. The website is www.insightcuba.com. Coming up, the Columbus Zoo's Jack Hanna and his animal friends have entertained us and educated us for years, but today we'll hear Jack's serious side as an animal educator and fighter to protect endangered species. I'm still the same person I was a young boy on the, boy on the farm in Tennessee. I'm not affected by television, but uh, it is a good way to talk about get the word of conservation out there. Next as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. I love listening to the World Footprints radio show online. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make worldfootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best 
Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. And I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Jack Hanna, nicknamed Jungle Jack, is one of the most notable animal experts in the United States. When he's not appearing on David Letterman or filming for his Saturday morning program or singing with the Von Trapp family, Jack is taking the stage to advocate on behalf of animal conservation programs, including with one of our partners, the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Or, more than likely, Jack is pursuing one of his other hobbies, like creating chaos. Jack, welcome. Good to be there. Now, you know, I'm piggybacking on this last statement that one of your hobbies is creating chaos, and a little birdie told me that you once got in trouble in college for keeping ducks in your dorm room and a donkey in a shed behind your fraternity house. What were you up to? Uh, Well, that's just where I was, raised on a farm in Tennessee, and uh, went away to college, and I raised miniature donkeys at home, and I just wanted to bring one with me. Of course, they kicked me out of school for a few weeks until I could get rid of the donkey. I wouldn't do that. So I went next door to the farm, right next door to the college, and put the donkey out there so I could go visit him every day. And then, then my ducks came when I met my wife, and we were just dating. I went to Long Island uh, where they had duck farms out there. Well, she lived in New Jersey. I went out there to go fishing with her dad, and I saw this duck farm. I said, oh, I love ducks. So I went there. I didn't realize they were raising ducks to eat, but, uh, and, you know, uh, <laughs> I just went up there and bought three ducks. Oh. And, uh, I, and so I aqueduct, bioduct, and overduct, and I named them, and I took them back to college, and now there's, to this day, that was, what, 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, and now there's all kinds of ducks still there. Oh, bless. That's a great story. And, you know, and I love your story just because you're a great example of someone who pursued their passion through, or their purpose through a passion, and you've really turned Jack Hanna into a brand with a positive message, and I understand it's become a family affair. Yeah, yeah, it has. It's not, you know, I never saw TV, and, you know, TV today, I do TV like some people might play golf or something. I don't, yes, it's a living, no doubt about that, but a lot of stuff I do on TV is, is just for the conservation efforts because I don't, look, I don't like the word celebrity, I don't like the word TV star, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'm a, I, I travel business, uh, I travel tourist class, and I have bumped up because all my miles, I don't take limos, I don't do anything. I'm still the same person I was as a young boy on the, boy on the farm in Tennessee. I'm not affected by television, but uh, it is a good way to talk about it get the word of conservation out there, whether it's David Letterman, which is a different audience than, obviously, that they're there for a laugh, but you have young people that need to know about the animal world, and so if you watch that show, even though you're going to laugh and he treats me like, you know what, uh, <laughs> the point is you've learned something. Now, Good Morning America, which I do the next morning all the time, mm-hmm. that's a different situation, or The Ellen Show, or uh, uh, even more Povich, or Fox News. Every, every show I do uh, is, is different than the other one, not different from the standpoint of the animal, but a different presentation to your audience because conservation exists with everybody. It's just a matter of what type of audience is watching that show. Well, you know, and, and you raise a, an interesting uh, question I wanted to ask you. You were on Nancy Grace as well, and yes. Nancy's an attorney like, like we are. What what was the audience you were trying to reach through that platform? Well, Nancy, Nancy, as you know, has a following, and she's a dear friend, but she has a love of animals like you wouldn't believe if you know her. her. She just literally animals this before she had her children. She just absolutely loves animals. I, I you know, do, do a lot of, I don't do that many shows there anymore because of time and restraints and everything else, but 
Uh, you know, she welcomes me on any time we have something to talk about the animal world because she's sincerely, like Greta Van Susteren, same thing. That woman just absolutely is passionate about animals. She's been to the Columbus Zoo. We did actually a one-hour special with her for Fox that we did in less than eight hours here at the zoo, a one-hour special with two cameras. That's mm-hmm. unheard of because, you know, it's just it's the interest of, obviously you have an interest with Lori Marker and the cheetah thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, what, that's what really makes it happen. You know, do I do a lot of shows? Uh, some shows I have done, I won't mention names because you know, uh, they have they have us on because it's, it gets ratings in their animals, right? Jack Hanna's funny. That's all fine and dandy, and, that, and I'll take those shows. But it's fun for me to do a show like Anderson Cooper. We're just doing his new show. We've been doing his show for years on uh, when you have an animal, uh, either an animal good thing or bad thing happen because Anderson... Uh, goes to hike with the mountain gorillas. We have a home in Rwanda, my wife and I. And we are living in a couple of weeks. We have an orphanage, orphanage, a school there. I've been going to Rwanda mm-hmm. since 82. And so what I'm saying is the ones that are really fun for me to do are the ones that, like yourself, you have an interest in what I, what we do. Mm-hmm. And obviously from Lori Marker and the Cheetah Conservation Fund, and so do Nancy Grace, so does Greta, so does uh, many, many people that we do shows with. And that's what makes it fun for me to go on those specific shows. Well, I I am so happy to to have you here to talk about something that we're very passionate about. And I want to ask you about Namibia. You know, you you do a lot of work all over the world, but is Namibia a a hub? Is it considered a hub for conservation? Well, now it is, yes. You won't believe this. I I think I'll only share this with you. I've done media for 20-something years, 28 years or 30 years professionally. But but, uh, not many people know this. Matter of fact, it's not even my book for some reason. I almost took a job in 19, this is amazing, 19, hold on a minute here. 1971, uh, I found out about in Wincook, there was a, a huge, only, uh, uh, only, I can't remember only his last name, but he had a huge animal reserve there. And I was hired there to go, go to work there. A guy in Wild Kingdom told me about it, and I was going to go work there. And I came that close to doing it. Mm. And thank goodness I didn't do it because our young daughter Julie got a terrible form of cancer uh, then, and she still has cancer. But the point is, that was 30 something years ago. And, and I came that close to going to Namibia. I was so fascinated by the country. But Namibia is, is, is one of the first country uh, almost in the world to incorporate you know, environmental protection in its constitution. And, and, you know, my gosh, the entire coastline of Namibia is protected. How many countries do that? Uh, the, the, I think it's like half the land of Namibia's national parks or conservancies or whatever it might be. So they've done an incredible job as far as on the continent of Africa, uh, you know, protecting their natural uh, land. As a matter of fact, their, their natural resources uh, mm-hmm. from the standpoint of land for animals. But the other, only other country I can think of right now is in uh, Tasmania, where it's about 100 miles long, basically about, I don't know, 20, 30 miles wide. And I think it's two-thirds of that country is national parks. So you can see that if you visit both these countries, you'll understand what I'm saying about how, they, uh, how, how you can really appreciate what they've done. And the numbers are there, by the way, to, to speak for itself on how these animals have increased. And so they, they, they're really setting the bar for other conservation yep. programs. Yeah. Yes, and, and there's South Africa does a great job, and, and so it's, it's a lot bigger than Namibia, obviously. And South Africa has done a, a, an incredible job as well with, with their uh, conservation efforts. And I think when you talk about Africa, or even other countries, by the way, and some, you can even per- pertain to something in our country sometimes, is, is corruption takes part, as you well know, in quite a few African countries. I'm sorry, throughout the world, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. even our country. Mm-hmm. But over there... When it comes to giving money towards conservation in South Africa, that money goes towards conservation. Even if it's hunting, it goes to conservation. It doesn't go in the guy's pocket. Same thing with Namibia. Same thing with Rwanda. Uh, I mean, I've known Rwanda very well. I live there. But uh, when, when someone helps with the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, it goes to mountain gorillas. 
Same thing in Namibia. When it goes to uh, Lori Marco and or the, all the other many, many people that do great work there, it goes to them. It doesn't go to the government because the government takes it for many other uses. Like, I shouldn't say this, probably it could be Uganda, it could be Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several countries in Africa, and I should keep my mouth shut, that, that money does not go to conservation. It goes to some of it to, to conservation, but not all of it. I can tell you that now. Right, right. And there's still problems with poaching, even, you know, with some of the, the countries that are trying to make headway. Um, oh, are you kidding me? It's, it's beyond comprehension what's happened here. I mean, I mean I, I'm sure you read what's happened. I just left South Africa uh, two and a half months ago. Uh, it, the black rhino is being annihilated. Yeah. It, it, you know, this was under control until about a year ago, and now it's a syndicate. When I filmed there for 1979 for the first time in in, in Africa, uh, it, well, I think it was in Zimbabwe. Of course, that country is a disaster right now, as you well know, not necessarily because of the people or the animal. The wildlife is trying to hold on there, but the leadership is, is beyond corrupt. Uh, I can't even believe this gentleman is still in power there. Uh, it's sad because the people suffer and the animals suffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animals not only suffer, they go into extinction in that, in that country. Uh, but, but when I first went there poaching rhinos back in 79, they were using like spears and, and bows and arrows and uh, guns that didn't work. And they use a, a, a machete, if you don't mind me get graphic on your show, they use a, m- a machete to take the horn off. The rhino horn is attached to the skin, not the skull. Do you follow me? Yes. It's not it's like your fingernail. Well, they, it took about three hours to poach a rhino then. Oh. Today, today, in South Africa, when I left there about 60-something days ago, they were averaging one to two rhino a day in, the, in just the country of South Africa, dying or getting poached. Why is that? It's a syndicate. The rhino horn, as you might have read, has gone up from like, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a horn. Do you believe to three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars? Three hundred seventy-five to four hundred thousand dollars a horn. It's unbelievable what's happened to the animals. And not only that, not only that. On top of that, guess how they're doing it? They're doing it with with uh, 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 tranquilizer guns and machine guns, as well as helicopters. And then when you go down on the ground, they use a chainsaw. So in less than one hundred and twenty seconds, two minutes, they can poach a rhino's horn, kill it. You know, and I, I've read stories about uh, some areas, and I think it's happening in Namibia as well, you know, where rangers are hired, and, and part of the enforcement issue is that the rangers aren't being paid enough, really, to put their, their, their cells in harm's way, and maybe some may be on the take or, or what have you, but do some of the programs, some of the conservation efforts involve making sure that rangers are compensated, uh, rangers who are in the fight against poachers are compensated properly so that they're incentivized enough to, to do the work that they're hired for? Yeah, I just, I just did a show, just aired last week on the, the, uh, the rangers that, that uh, a man that was in the Australian Army went there. He actually served uh, nine tours. He was head of the uh, sniper team for the Australian Army in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Anyway, he, he came to Africa just because he was out of the Army after 14 years. He saw the poaching going on. You know what he did? He started an anti-poaching unit, training these guys. It's amazing. I was in the training unit for two days there. It's just like when I was in the boot camp in the Army. It's amazing because the new rule, the new law, I think, and I think I'm right about this, is Zimbabwe and other countries right now is shoot to kill. There is no more stopping asking questions. Mm. The order is that because they cannot afford what's happening. I mean, you look at, yes, these rangers are going to be paid by the government, for what I understand, but you're right. Some of them might not be paid as much, so therefore – uh, and, and there might be some inside stuff going on, but I think they're catching most of that now. That used to be a big problem, what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, inside of it. And, of course, the rangers that might be involved in poaching. But anymore, I don't believe that in most countries. Now, you look at you look at the, the rhino population, and, and you talk about Namibia. That's what we're talking about today. I think and there was six rhino in the early 80s, six rhino in Namibia. Today there's more than 1,500. Now, there, there is what you call a country that's being successful. Look at the... Uh, the uh, the uh, in 2002 the black rhino population in 2002 was 750. To the 2009 was 1500. 
Can you imagine? Look at what they're doing here. Look at look what's happening on the other side in some other countries in Africa. They're going directly the opposite way. Uh, so it's an incredible thing in the rhino. The cheetah, you've talked about the cheetah. You know, my gosh. Uh, I think it was, what was it, like uh, uh, 4,000 animals there. Right. Uh, they, have the large, uh, yeah, they do have the largest cheetah population in the world, thanks to people like Lori Marker. Uh, I mean, uh, right now it's like 4,000 up from like 2,000, 1980s, you up to 4,000 now there. And there's only 10,000 cheetahs left in the world mm-hmm. in Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cheetah used to range, if you look at the pyramids in Egypt and the mummies up there, if you go to Egypt, hopefully they'll clear up so that you can go back there. When I went there, you actually see cheetah drawn on the inside of the pyramids and mummies. So we know that thousands of years ago the cheetah lived there. Today, go about 2,000 miles south before you find the first cheetah. They're totally extinct up there. Yeah. So now that shows you what can happen if they're safeguarded in some kind of a way. So, uh, you know, it's a, it, the, the list goes on and on and on. It's a, the Cape Griffin vulture, which I did a story on there several years ago in Namibia. I did a story on Laurie Marker. I mean, there's only, uh, my gosh, I think it was something like my figures here, like 2,000 uh, Cape Griffin vultures in the 1950s, 2,000. Today there's 20, less than 20 in Namibia. Mm-hmm. And thanks to this one uh, uh, Griffin vulture uh, project they have there, they're living. Now, what happened there? You have farmers use poison. They put out poison livestock to control predators like leopards. You find me they poison a dead cow or something. Leopards eat it or the birds eat it. And, of course, they die. That's the problem there as well. Yeah, yeah. And you go, it goes on and on and on. The elephants in Namibia. I mean, like 7,500 elephants in 1995. Today, there's 16,000. Now, yeah, it shows you that Namibia is working. Let's put it that way. Oh, one last thing. My, one of my favorite animals, by the way. All my animals are favorite, elephants, everything. <laughs> but having, having raised lions and when I was a young man for zoos, they have the largest, well, i say the only expanding population of free-ranging lions in the world. Most lions you've read, I don't know if you've read this, uh, right now there are about uh, uh, 900 lions in Namibia. That's not a lot, but they're increasing. Whereas all the other countries, almost in Africa, the lions are absolutely going down the tubes right now. Some mm-hmm. of it's from distemper from other animals. Some of it's from... Uh, just loss of habitat, but most all countries are losing lion populations other than Namibia. So I've just listed three or four or five animals that, that prove that whatever Namibia is doing is working. Now, talk a little bit about what you're doing in Namibia with uh, the che- uh, CCF, the Cheetah Conservation Fund, and REST. REST is an organization I've not heard a lot about, and, and I'm very interested in, in what they're doing uh, with rare and endangered species. Now, right now I know more about Lori Barker than I do Rust, but but Lori Marker is something that the Columbus Zoo has supported from day, day one. We probably breed more cheetahs at the zoological park as well. As we, have you ever seen the wilds here, by the way, outside of Columbus? We call it the wilds. No, I haven't. Yeah, all right. uh, write that down if you would right now. All your listeners, it's called the wilds. It's about an hour and a half of the Columbus Zoo. It's 10,000 acres, 110 lakes with animals that you've never even heard of before uh, on this place. It's only open to about 500 people a day. It's the most spectacular thing you'll ever visit other than going to Africa. Now, I'm not just saying that because the Columbus Zoo runs it and owns it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the animals we have there are animals that are, some of them are totally extinct in the wild there right now. Hmm. We have an incredible uh, large breeding program for cheetahs. You can imagine having 10,000 acres. And if you and your husband want to go there or your, your station and do something from there, you'll find it beyond any show you've ever done. Let's put it that way. Uh, but as far as Lori Marker is concerned, uh, if you visit her center over there, you'll understand it's a first-class place, by the way. And that's when you know some people mean well in Africa and other countries by helping animals. But you go there and you see that they're living on, they can't really hardly feed their families, and yet they want to save the animals. But 
sometimes it's even doing more detriment to the animals because they don't have the money to do the research that Lori's done. Mm-hmm. Not just the research, but also teaching people. I think the main thing Lori Barker does with the Cheetah Conservation Fund is the fact of educating people. Because you know something? We cannot have conservation without education. You know, a lot of my zoo colleagues, some of them not a lot, several argue with me, the number one goal of zoos is, that, is conservation. That's not right. I don't think that's incorrect. You cannot have conservation until you have education. You have to educate people. You follow what I'm saying? In I, Namibia, I do, and I, and I to, agree with you. To understand why you have conservation. And that's what Lori Walker does. She goes out there. She doesn't go tell a, tell a man who's just killed a uh, cheetah because he's eating his cows and goats. You know, That's what sometimes Americans, we, we think, oh, the poacher should go into jail and be put to death. Well, let me tell you something. They have families that are starving to death. And I would and you would, you'd do the same exact thing mm-hmm. if, you, if you had that situation. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to do is introduce new food sources, educate them, which Lori's done. It didn't, it's not something you do overnight, by the way. It takes time to do this. And that's what Lori's done a great job of. And I've, I have to admire her because some people do these things, go to these countries, and after about four or five years, they've done their bill, hoorah, and written their books and all that kind of crap you know, stuff. And then they leave the country. You follow me? Yeah. And, and that's, just, that's not what Lori's done. Lori's stuck with this thing through thick and thin in an area that's not that easy to live in, in, in certain ways, living out there in the middle of nowhere. And, and her cheetahs are her life, she and her husband. And it's a, I just can't tell you how much uh, I admire her. Uh, it, ditto, ditto. And by the way, I had the opportunity to meet Moya from your your zoo. Oh, you did? Fell in love. I'm in love. Oh. Love. Oh. If yeah, I, Mar- oh, I was with Moya yesterday. She's an ambassador. You know, some people say, oh, my gosh. You take the cheetah out. Yes, the cheetah also comes back here to the, to, to, uh, to heaven here at the zoo. But how much how much money has Moya raised? Well, not just for Lori, but the awareness of a beautiful creature like that. You know how much money you're talking? Uh, who knows how many excess of hundred thousand dollars now? I know. I mean, it's mm. an ambassador. That's all. Yeah, yeah, and and when people you know when people have a passion, when people fall in love with something, whether it be a language or a, a, a species or what have you, they they take ownership. They take you know. Um, they get involved. They, you know, it's kind of like a call to action to do something. You know, to save a uh, save a cheetah or or you know uh, contribute to a community. And so, I think she's a wonderful ambassador and met, oh, a beautifully well behaved animal. Unlike my little fella here, Irwin, who um, yeah. <laughs> you may hear in a in a moment. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed meeting her. Now, Jack, are there are there certain animals that you have a particular focus on, or the organizations that you work with have a particular focus on that are uh, inc- you know very 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 close to extinction? Are there certain animals that you're well, yeah. putting some energy into right now? That, yes, and that's why I want you to go to the wild. It's not just all the zoos have a lot of have similar animals. SSP Species Survival Plan. We have the American Zoo and Aquarium Association, and that's all good. But at the wilds, we also have, uh, not because we're trying to be different than anybody else, because we have the land and the expertise and the, and the, the doctors, the, the biologists, the scientists, whatever, researchers out there. At the wilds, we have the Takin. You're the Takin, T-A-K-I-N, the Takin taken okay. from China. You write that down, because you're going to see the largest herd in the world at the wilds. Now, that's, you asked me about what we have other animals interest in. We have the largest herd outside of China. As a matter of fact, the Chinese sent people to our the wilds for three months last summer to study the Takin because it lives where the giant panda lives. Mm. This animal looks like a half goat, half sheep, and weighs over 600 pounds. It looks like a grizzly bear from the back. I doubt if many people on this listening right now have ever heard of such a thing. We have the Arabian orcs, um, the scimitar horn orcs, the um, the the Pervosky horse, all these animals, most all these creatures I'm saying, a lot of them are extinct in the wild now. We're actually trying to get some reintroduced into the wild. 
We have the only zoo, the only place in the world was the wilds where there's a fourth generation uh, rhino, white rhino born in a, in a situation like this. Uh, three other four species of giraffe, uh, the Asian rhino, the black rhino, the white rhino. Uh, I could go on the Bactrian camel, um, the cheetah, the wild dogs of Africa, the mm-hmm. the quoll. Is it called a quoll? I think a quoll. I can't remember the quoll. It's um, I'm sorry. There's a dog from Asia, very very rare. So what we have out there is what I'm listening to you, uh, telling you is is the fact that this is a place that is absolutely unbelievable. So yes, we're focusing on that area to raise those kinds of animals because they're some of our big large herd animals, as well as they have the land where they're not disturbed by. It might be a. I'm not saying that the zoos visitors disturb the animals because now these animals are all have been born in zoos. And another question here that your listeners, if there are any animal, animal rights people listening. More than likely, a lot of them don't like me because of how we educate with animals on our show. I'll continue to do that because when they debate me, whether it used to be on Larry King Live or Fox or wherever, they talk about zoos and what we're doing. And you know better than this. Uh, 98% of our animals plus come from other zoos. They don't come from the wild anymore. So that's, yeah. a very weak, that's a very weak argument. But we have to have zoological parks today. We have to have them. Like we had 176 million people go to them last year. The largest recreation in America is a visitation to zoos and aquariums right now. 176 million, bigger than pro football, NASCAR, all of them put together. And that's why, because they're coming there to learn about the animal world. That's what's so important, like the Wilds or the Columbus Zoo mm-hmm. or, you know, Lori Marker. You know, I'd love to see Lori Marker just kind of pick up her whole place and become bring here so we can learn more about the cheetah. But that's obviously not possible. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I think you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, how passionate I am and how I'm sure your listeners, and just by you saying you support Loy, you're obviously passionate about saving the world's fastest land mammal. We're not talking about some animal. There's there's tens of thousands. We're talking about an animal that is not reached a critical point yet, but, but thanks to Loy, it hasn't reached, reached that critical point. Right. Right. We're just passionate about animals, period. So, and, and, you know, very strong animal rights uh, advocates. And and this is, you know, it's a blessing to, to have you on our show and to talk to you about something that uh, that's very important to us, very important to our audience. And, um, and certainly, you know, do what we can in our little in our little space to raise more awareness and, and help educate, because I do agree that education, you know, education and conservation go hand in hand. And, uh, and so I, I truly appreciate uh, your time. And I really want to have you back on our show to talk about the zoo. You know, I didn't get a chance to, to talk to you about uh, your, your most recent Saturday show and the baby orangutan I saw being bathed. Oh, that? Yeah, oh. that was, that's our wild countdown show. That's uh Twenty-something uh, thousand tapes and videos we had over the last thirty years. It's the top ten cats world, top ten dogs, top ten bears, that kind of thing. And of course, Jack Hands into the Wild incorporates my family, uh, as you just saw with the baby rings or my family. We just got back from Namibia, Botswana, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Where next time we might talk about the terrible drought over there, where I filmed like you don't know how many elephants dying in mud holes and everything else, which was terrible. But mm-hmm. but then there's also positive. You know, the good Lord has His own ways about when He makes it rain and not rain. So. Uh, there's both pros and cons to that, but you know there's so much that we can talk about. That obviously I love talking to someone like yourself, who has a sincere love and desire of what I have. I do a lot of radio shows, a lot of TV shows where it's just Jack Hanna being on there. But I appreciate people who have the same interest that we are all trying to do this together to help to help save the animal world. Absolutely. Well, it takes a village, as as with anything else. So, and I'm happy to be part of the Jungle Jack Village here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for calling me and uh, and. Uh, yeah, hopefully we can get together again soon. Coming up, learn how setting aside some space in your suitcase can help others as Rebecca Rothney of Pat for a Purpose shows us how.
and Pat for Purpose Travelers, who are the final participants that make this happen, have taken over 1,500 pounds of supplies in the last two years. Next as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with One Brick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, in England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and uh, wish you all the success with your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As part of our mission to share legacies of positive footprints, we are pleased to reintroduce you to our friend, Rebecca Rothney, founder of Pack for a Purpose. As you may remember, Pack for a Purpose helps travelers leave huge footprints with just small, simple steps. The organization has grown tremendously, and even Oprah has taken notice. Two things are for certain. Many lives have been impacted in meaningful ways, and Rebecca's chocolate chip cookies have become a must-have staple throughout the world. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs> well, it's true. They're, they're like a golden commodity, your, your cookies. <laughs> well, I will say that we have actually developed an e-cookie voucher because since all the wonderful people who work with me are volunteers, I pay them in homemade, hot-out-of-the-oven chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> and so we developed a voucher to send out that people may collect on. There's never an expiration date, but you do have to be present <laughs> to collect on the voucher. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure you might get a few more inquiries after, after this show. So congratulations on all of your growth and the PR success you, you've achieved. Uh, we're so very proud of you because we understand the growing pains that, that you've experienced your first couple of years with this organization. Well, thank you very, very much. We are delighted to say that we have grown from 25 original places, and actually it was a year ago. It was almost a year ago to the day um, that we spoke last March. Wow. We have gone from 100 to over 228, we're at 229 lodgings around the world. And places are starting to actually contact us directly, which is what we'd hope for, through our website. 
and submit their lodgings. One of the things that I love about you and that what resonates with us is that you were really, you found your purpose in Pack for a Purpose and it came about in a very kind of fortuitous, accidental way in some ways. And so you're a testimony to pursuing a passion and turning that into something that grows and makes a wonderful positive impact. Well, thank you very much. It's definitely the work of an entire team. I may have given birth to the idea, but I have had amazing midwives, nannies, um, anything else you can think of, who kept the idea alive, uh, increased its viability, and for that I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. We're now in 37 different countries and packed for a purpose travelers who are the final participants that make this happen have taken over 1,500 pounds of supplies in the last two years. And I know for a fact, as people start reporting back to us in the current year, that there have been over 500 pounds already uh, taken to places around the globe in the first three months of 2012. Good grief. Now, remind our audience how Pack for a Purpose works. It's so easy that it's really capable for everybody to do it. You go to our website, you select a destination, and it will be by region or continent. So you might see the Caribbean, or you might see Asia, or Southeast Asia, or Africa. You click on the place you're going, and you'll see a drop-down list of all the countries that participate currently, because we're always adding new places. Then you look for the destination you're staying at, the lodging. When you click on their page, we'll have an exact list that changes as it evolves of the projects they're doing, and the needs that they have requested. So you can be sure this is specific to the projects you're going to, and it's what they really want and need. And then you just choose what you'd like to bring with you for however much space you can allocate, whether it's five pounds, one pound, or if you hardly need anything at all because you're going to go to a tropical place and you just need a bathing suit and sunscreen and a hat and flip-flops, you're certainly welcome to bring more. But whatever you bring, from one pound to a 100 pounds, will always be an incredibly appreciated gift. Now, Rebecca, you mentioned that you've had new community partners uh, come on board, new lodges, resorts, et cetera, around the world. How do you select these people, or they select you, but do you go through a vetting process? And oh, absolutely. One way that we use is to go through award-winning properties. So um, Travel and Leisure, Condé Nast, they all have awards they give out for poverty alleviation and work with education and environmental awards for places around the world that are making a a big impact. So as we find those award winners, we contact them because we're 100% sure if they've won an award for that, that they're really doing it. Every single place on our website first has to have the project that they're doing clearly listed and visible on their own website. So we've also used different trade shows that they might attend, looked at the list of invitees, seen who was doing a specific project, and then invited them. So if someone has a page on our website, it's because we know they're doing a project and they've contacted us, they've sent us the needs, they've sent us the photos, and then we've created a page for them. Mm -hmm. And they change. Somebody was doing a clinic, but the nurse left in the community who was doing the clinic, so the clinic had to come down off the website. Some people needed new supplies. They needed um, high math functioning solar calculators, so we added that to the list. So our goal is to be as current 
and up-to-date is the lodgings communicate with us. And really, you can have an infinite number of lodging partners on your website. You're not capping at a particular number, are you? I guess we do have a cap, and that would be every single place on the planet where you could spend the night that's doing a community-based <laughs> project. That is our cap. That leaves a lot of space. we haven't reached it yet. <laughs> no, the more, the more, first of all, PFAP travelers can make us wear places that they may have gone before. They wear a pack for a purpose traveler, and they know that they were doing a project, and they can alert the lodging to submit their property, or they can alert us, and we're happy to send out an invitation to them. Um, today, we received a, sub- a submission, and when I asked them how they found out about us, they said they were looking at another property's website, saw a hyperlink, checked it into it, and checked into it and felt it was exactly aligned Mm. with their belief in community responsibility, and so they applied. Well, you know, just... So those are are one way. And then we we just scan the web and, again, look for places that already have their projects listed and send them invitations. Well, I know the, the word is getting out, and, you know, I know you've heard from people all over the world who have actually packed for a purpose, and... um you know, just by setting aside a small space in their luggage to uh, to help a local community, and and uh, you've been contacted by some of these people. They understand that have had very transformative, uh, life altering experiences, and I want to ask you to share a couple of those stories with us. It just fills our days with joy when we have these stories. And for more details and more stories, if you go to our website, packforapurpose.org, you will be able to see this, all the stories where people have taken the time to go ahead and send us photos and tell us about their trip. And I'm sure there are many travelers who didn't have the time, and that's okay. As long as you're packing for a purpose, that's what's most important. But here is Karen's story, which was from this March. I was so glad to read about Pack for a Purpose in Oprah Magazine. It was just the solution I was looking for, a way to balance out the luxury of an incredible trip to South Africa, Botswana, and Zambia by giving something back to the special places I would be visiting. I brought school supplies for two schools, one in Stellenbosch near Cape Town and one in the Cindy Village in Zambia near Victoria Falls. The team at Pack for Purpose put me in touch with the staff in each area who helped me arrange to personally deliver the supplies, even the small amount I was able to bring. Those school visits were the most meaningful parts of my journey. I met the principals of each school who were so kind to give of their time and energy to explain how meaningful these supplies are for the children. As Grantham Jansen, principal of the Lindach Primary School in Stellenbosch, told me, when you bring supplies, you are telling these children that they are worthy. What a joy it was to see the students learning and smiling and full of life. And, of course, it was clear how even the smallest of packages with supplies like pins, paper, maps, rulers could make a difference in their lives. I will definitely be doing Pack for a Purpose again. What an incredible organization. And that's a quote, okay? Wow. <laughs> now, are, are these are these um, individuals, are they based in, in the U.S.? Because I know you have also a letter from a couple uh, in Europe, uh, Germany, I think. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. This other couple was based in the U.S., but the thing that I think is interesting about them, and I'll just be brief, is not only did they take supplies and their son was with them, but it was very interesting at the end. She said, we were fortunate enough to meet the principal and secretary and to see firsthand how dedicated they and the teachers are who are serving the students despite modest resources. As a result, we further committed to collecting and shipping a gently used office computer along with sporting equipment, particularly much-needed baseball gloves. The male students are currently using old girls' catcher's gear. Good heavens. 
That's my comment. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll also send newer boys gear as well. So not only did the Goldsmith family pack for a purpose, but they're continuing to ship for a purpose mm. so the children can have the right type of, of equipment. And I think that is especially um, endearing to know that sometimes, depending on where you're shipping something to, you can continue that process, and it is very, very special. That's a beautiful story. Your message is reaching people from all over the world and not just uh, United States citizens who are traveling to other places, both domestically and abroad, but um, you, you know, you're, you've reached, you're reaching a whole, uh, a whole globe of people who are interested in embarking on meaningful travel and and I think that's a beautiful thing and I'm, I'm just being biased because when you're our partner one of our partners and we love you to death but you know that's also our platform and so it really resonates with us well the couple who are our first official bride and groom actually were from Germany and they were going to get married in Zanzibar the Red Monkey Lodge, which is on our website, makes it very clear how you can bring supplies for the hospital, which is their particular project in Zanzibar. So when um, Alex and Anne saw that on the Red Monkey Lodge website, they encouraged their friends to help them, who were doctors, and they actually brought 70 kilos, which is over 140 pounds, of medical supplies to the hospital. The groom's mother was going along, and she was a midwife, so she brought another 15 kilos of birthing supplies. So we were lucky enough they took photos of delivering supplies to the hospital, and then after staying at the Red Monkey Lodge, they went to another property on Zanzibar where the wedding occurred. They were gone for three weeks, and we have photos of that too, and we'll be sharing those on our website in the very near future. So it was amazing because every bride and groom Every bride and groom could pack for a purpose on their honeymoon, increasing the joy and generosity that they've experienced from their friends and guests with the local community they're visiting. Mm, you know, I mean, it's, it's, they're creating uh, beautiful memories and, and leaving uh, wonderful legacies. And I love, again, what Pack for a Purpose stands for, and I love the, the message. And, you know, it's such a simple thing. You know, and and you've had a way, however, of um, uh, you've been successful in organizing such a simple thing to do, and uh, and so I applaud your efforts. And uh, honestly, Rebecca, we're uh, just so pleased to to know you and to work collectively on uh, creating. Uh, and sharing legacies of positive footprints. And I will say that uh, Pack for Purpose, uh, your website and your logo are on our website, on our partner page, and soon to be on our community, our, um, our Footprints Network page. Uh, and so if uh, people don't remember your website offhand, uh, certainly on this show page, on your guest page, there, there are links for packforapurpose.org on uh, several places on uh, the World Footprints website. But thank you so much, my dear, for sharing your success, for sharing your growth, and certainly, as you know, you always have an open door to come back on World Footprints. We're very grateful for all the generous time you've given us, and I think that you attract exactly the kind of listener who would choose to pack for a purpose, have a big impact, and make a positive footprint when they go on their next journey. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report of the latest breaking travel news, or if you'd like to travel with us to some unique destinations, visit worldfootprints.com. 
While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates about travel news, contests, and other giveaways. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and until we see you on the air again next time, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, there are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.